Thank you so much for that, Wesley, and the praise team just bringing us to the throne room of God. I hope you have had a happy Thanksgiving. Uh, You know, one of the things that Thanksgiving week does is it launches us into the holiday season, which, as we know, has a life of its own, right? This month or so in in the calendar, it kind of has its own culture. There's some real blessings in this season. Uh, including this focus on gratitude that is launched at Thanksgiving. There's uh, also a focus on family and some special gatherings often associated of your family, and that's, that's great. There's also this culture of giving that's embedded in this month, kind of in cooperation with being grateful for what we have. We look at what others don't, and, and so there's this culture of giving, but there's also some real landmines at this time as well. There's family, you know, with that focus on family, there's family stressors that are sometimes created or noticed or highlighted. Of course, there's this focus on consumerism during this time. The monetization of the holiday season is alive and well, so present and thick that we don't even notice it a lot of times. There's loneliness gets kind of magnified, you know, broken relationships recent losses. Um, it's not that they're, 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 there's more brokenness. It's just it's, it's magnified during this time, especially broken family or friend relationships. It's felt more. So as Christians in the holiday season, really this is true at any time, but we are in the holiday season. We want to be wise in how we approach life. We want to be Wise. We want to be full of wisdom. It's one of Scripture's really big deals, as a matter of fact. One of God's big deals is wisdom. I just flipped open to Proverbs, one of our wisdom literature, and picked out a few. Proverbs 3 says, Blessed is the man who finds wisdom. And Proverbs 4 says it's stronger. It says wisdom, this is big, wisdom is supreme. Okay, that's what it says. It says wisdom is supreme, therefore get wisdom though it cost all you have. Scripture really elevates wisdom. Then you flip over to Proverbs 8 and it says, wisdom is more precious than rubies and nothing you desire can compare with her. I mean, I've got a lot of desires. I think some of them are pretty lofty, okay? Pretty pretty kingdom-oriented even. But this verse says wisdom is right up there in comparison to anything you can desire as worthy. So what I want to do is spend the next five weeks leading up to Christmas taking a look at this interesting scene that Wesley just read to us in Matthew chapter 2. And this is interesting to me because Matthew, you, you may or may not know, there's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew is known as the kind of overtly Jewish author writing to a Jewish audience in order to sort of make the case to that Jewish audience that Jesus is the long-awaited, connected to the Old Testament, Jewish Messiah. And so it's packed with Jewish code and language and, and proofs and, and evidence and things like that. So it's interesting to me that of all the Gospels, Matthew is the one that puts this story of these mysterious Easterners right? Looking at the stars, okay? Like these mysterious people um, from the East, not distinctly non-Jewish people, 
are being embedded right at the outset of his very Jewish book, half of the chapter two is about these guys. And so that's just interesting to me. That Why, why did he put them in there of all the guys? Because he's the one that does. And now we know, you remember these guys, right? We just read about them, but they, we call, you know, they are, how many of them do we understand there to be? Three, and we call them the three wise men. That's right. So in scripture, we don't actually know there's three and they're never called wise men, even though that's what we know them to be. We don't know. I think scripturally, we kind of get that from the three gifts that they bring. That might be where we get the number three, uh, but we don't know. There's an Eastern tradition that talks of this visit that says there were 12. That would be way more biblical, I think. But anyway, there'd be 12 of these wise men. And like I said, they're never called wise men. As a matter of fact, the word used is a very non-Matthew word, magi. I mean, magi, they're called magi from the east. This is, I mean, magi, that takes me like to Dungeons and Dragons, right? That's a class of character. I mean, this is, this is, I'm using that phrase because it's so weird for this to be in the Bible. And if you look at that word, it's used one other time in the Bible, this word for magi in the Greek. You know what it is? It's an ax. Simon the sorcerer. Okay, that's, that's the only other time. So this word in the Greek, it is not wise men. It is magi or sorcerer. It has to do with magic, sorcery. It's associated with alchemy, astrology. I mean, that makes sense based on the little narrative here. So that, that's really weird. But wise men is nowhere in that word. Now, th- there's a better case to be made, and sometimes we do call these the three kings, right? That's a little bit more biblical because back in Psalm 72 and Isaiah 60, there's, these, there's, there's some chapters there that are presumed to be about Jesus and they talk about these rulers coming to take a knee and these kings coming to, to give gifts. And those get associated with this story, so they're called the three kings. So we have a better case to be made biblically to call them kings, but that's not the word in Greek at all either. It's magi. And so the one thing we know they're not called and we have no Bible basis for is wise. Okay? But that's what we know them as. But before we toss that traditional title of these guys aside I would like to ask Matthew since he did put a half chapter about these guys and he saw it appropriate to put them in and did not think it comp- does not think it compromises the evidence that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah maybe he embedded in this story things in there that help them earn this traditional title maybe it didn't just come out of nowhere Maybe we do consider them wise in the Christian tradition for some reason. If that's to be found, it's found right here in this chapter. So that's my approach for the, I hope will be a fun but meaningful series for us moving up to Christmas. I want to show you five reasons in these five weeks, ending on December 25th, about how I see these visitors are wise, that they were wise, and that we should follow in their example in these five qualities, these five characteristics, these five behaviors that these guys embodied. So my first observation for this week, the first quality I want to lift up up to you is evidence that these magi are indeed wise men is articulated in the first couple of verses. 
It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw a star in the east and have come to worship him. So familiar, we don't quite maybe dive into what's happening here, but on the broadest sense, what they were doing is something that we now as Christians look back and think is the wisest move any human being can make. They are seeking Jesus. They are seeking, and they see Jesus as God. We know that because they are coming not to meet him, to worship him. Okay? And so they are seeking God. They are seeking Jesus. These men, I believe, can be considered wise because they were seeking God and looking for him in Jesus. Back when my uh, son, my youngest son, Jacob, he was eight years old, and we had developed a habit from when he was about four one of the things, I would go and, you know, to tuck my kids in in bed at night, and that's when you ask them questions because they want to stay up, you know, so they'll talk. You know, that's the best time to do that or do things. So one of the practices that we made, that Jake and I did, was he would, well, he would come up with the most impressive questions starting so early in life, spiritual questions, usually about the Trinity. I was like, where is he coming up with that? I mean, this is just, you know, I, I mean, very often I'd find myself saying, I don't know. You know, that just, I don't know. So why don't we ask God? I think that's how it started. So we started this practice where occasionally we would lie in that bed and we would ask God a question. We'd be quiet and we would just listen. We could ask him any question. We would just listen. And then we would report to each other if we heard anything. And so some amazing things happened in these times for those years. But it had been months since we had done it and I'd gone back in uh, to his bedroom, and he goes, hey, Dad, could we, could we do that? You know those moments? That's what he called them. You know those moments that we do? I go, yeah. He goes, could we do that tonight? I go, yeah, let's, yeah, let's do it. So we got quiet, and it was great because I always knew when he was done because he's, he's like waiting patiently for me to be done. I said, so did, did you ask him a question? He goes, yes. I wrote it down. I said, what question did you ask him? This is why he had because he had this question. He knew not to ask me anymore. He said, I asked God why him and the Holy Spirit didn't die when Jesus died on the cross since they are all God. He's eight. He's eight. I'm like, gulp. Did he answer? Yes. (sighs) Okay. What did he say? He said, he said, because him and the Holy Spirit moved away from Jesus for him to die. I don't think my eight-year-old is thinking of connections to that, like, Father, why have you forsaken me? You know, I I don't know. And I'm just, I am just, tons of these moments with him growing up, okay? But this one right here, I was thrilled. Whatever your theology is on, on, about the Trinity, whatever your reaction to that story is, what I was thrilled about is that my son is seeking God, right? He is seeking God. And one of the ways in which he was seeking God was through what he called these moments that we decided to engage in. So we, not, we know surprisingly little about these magi. 
right? These men, these wise men. And we're kind of left to speculate what happened in their lives before we get to Matthew 2. But using a little, just give me some liberty here, a little create, creative imagination based on what we do know. And just as generically as I can say it and think, I imagine that over there in the East, these guys had a fervent desire to find the source of what they are observing, the, the, the creator. We know they're observing nature, right? Because they're looking at the stars at a minimum. They found each other. They've got some community around this search. We know that because they ended up journeying together to follow the same thing, looking for God. So I'm imagining they're looking for some source of this universe. And that in that desire, God somehow spoke to them in some way enough to get them up and on a search to leave. I don't know how these conversations with their wives went, right? But uh, going to follow this star. I don't know. How did he speak to them in nature, in circumstances, the still small voice? I don't know. But he said something to them. For sure, he gave them a light, literally a star. So he enlightened their way. I'm imagining this was a pretty long journey. And along the journey, somewhere along the way, in this journey, God got them exposed to this idea. I don't know if they met someone who knew the prophecies of the Jews or they, I don't know what it was, but they knew to ask about the one born king of the Jews. So somehow God had gotten to them that, hey, what you're looking for is this, this, this person who has been born in this little nation, this little tribe to the west of you called the Jews. Okay, so go there. And I'm leading you right there. So, okay, I'm being as generic as I can, but trying to fill in what happens. So they get there, and they, we know that they are following, they are searching for Jesus, I should say, following the star. So by the time we get to Matthew 2, we don't know much, but we do know that they were attentive and eager enough to seek, to get up and move and seek God and try to find him through Jesus, even though they don't know his name yet. That's what we know. And I believe that's the wisest move anyone can make. And the question today is, are you? Just like them, I don't know how God has spoken to you and gotten to you, but I know he's wanting to be found by you and he's wooing you he's trying to get you to be attentive and eager and to move in your life towards him to search for him and if you will i believe he will just like these guys lead you to jesus to find god through jesus are you seeking god i know most everyone in here is in general agreement that you should be that you should be that you should want this but are you If so, if your answer is yes, how? How are you? Because if you are, you'll be able to answer that. You'll be able to answer how. Here is specifically how I'm going about it. For my son, when he was eight, one of the ways he was going about it was through those moments I described to you. He was seeking God, and I know that because I can tell you how he was seeking God. So you can't just say, generally, I agree with the idea that I'm seeking God. How are you seeking God? So two observations from these guys that I hope help you be challenged and invited towards wisdom 
in your seeking of God. First of all, we notice they were seeking the right king. However God got them there, they were seeking the right king. And this is where I get this. In verse 2 it says, remember, they go to King Herod. You know who King Herod was? The king of the Jews. All right? They go to King Herod and they say, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? They're talking to the one who's been appointed king of the Jews by the Romans. They probably don't even realize how much danger they're in by asking this guy this question. This This is Herod the Great, okay? Herod the Great killed anyone that he felt like was a threat to his throne, including his wives and his brothers. That's who these guys go to. And so they're looking for the one born, not this false king that was appointed king, They want to know the true king because they're looking for God. They didn't worship this appointed king. They didn't come here to do that. They came here to ask for any guidance he might give them to the true king that's God who they will then take a knee to and worship. So the question embedded in that for you is, are you seeking the right king? Are you seeking the right God? Are you elevating and pursuing with your life, with what you're doing, the correct king? If you're following some lesser false king that's been appointed to rule over your life, then it's false. And whenever we set up a false something or someone other than God in Scripture, that's basically generally called idolatry. Okay, it's called idolatry. And it's an age-old problem, and we are all still susceptible to it, to putting something at the center of our life besides God and pursue it. Back in Deuteronomy 4, this is early on in the story, but I could find a hundred of these. But early on, the people of God have been rescued by God. They've been taken from slavery and to the promised land, and they're warned. The longer you get from the memory of that, the more you're susceptible to putting someone other or something other than me. It says in verse 25 of Deuteronomy 4, After you have had children and grandchildren and have lived in the land a long time, if you then become corrupt and make any kind of idol where you will, there you will worship man-made gods of wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or eat or smell. He's saying not only is it wrong, and we've got all the other kind of verses about idolatry being wrong. You don't place other gods before him, but it's not going to work. They're not living. They're not active. They're not for you. It continues. It says, but if from there, even there, you seek the Lord your God, you will find him if you will look for him with all your heart and with all your soul. The wisest move we can make, no matter where we're at in the story, no matter where we're at in our faith, the wisest move we can make. And he promises, you seek me, you'll find me. It's a principle all through Scripture, beginning to end. And the second observation I make here is that they were seeking him in the right place. They were looking in the right place to find God, okay? Now, why am I saying that? Because, I mean, where was the right place for them? They learned wherever Jesus was, right? They had to be guided to that, but they finally got down to it. This God we're after is leading us to Jesus. Now, we know why that is. It's in Colossians 2.8 where it says, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. So if they're after God, if they're after the deity, it's going to lead them through Jesus. 
And so the question we need to ask, for them, Jesus was in Jerusalem. I mean, in Bethlehem, okay? And I find it interesting that, well, I'll get to that here in a minute. It, 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 so they found out where he was, where Jesus was, because he was in bodily form. He's not now, right? He even said, it's going to be better if I go. Right now, I'm here in bodily form, and you love having me with you guys. But when I go, the Holy Spirit will come. But we're still after Jesus, but not like they were. So we need to add. This just took me to a fun question. Where's Jesus? If I want to go after Jesus now, if you want to go after Jesus, and if you want to do this wise move and seek Jesus, where is he located? Where do you find him? So I went to scripture and I asked, where is Jesus now? And I got literally nine answers. So I'm going to run through them real quick. This is where you find Jesus, okay? The first one is in a practice we just had, the Lord's Supper. Matthew 26 says, while they're eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples and said this, wow, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks to that, says, drink from it, all of you, this is my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. In some, this is called a sacrament, right? The Lord's Supper. One of the names for the sacrament through Christian Christian history is the Eucharist, which means thanksgiving. Another name is communion, which definitely involves, because they're at that table together, fellowship with each other, with Jesus at the center, but also fellowship with Christ. You know, when the Catholics had this doctrine that the, you may or may not know about this, this doctrine that the bread was actually transformed into the actual body of Jesus and the cup is actually transformed to the blood. That may have run a bunch of us off from allowing the mystery of the presence of Jesus to be in this, right? You know whether it is or not, you just took it. Are you looking for Jesus when you partake in that ancient feast that Jesus established? If not, no wonder No wonder you're not finding him. He's also found in the other sacrament that we practice, and that's baptism. Colossians 2.12 says, Having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. When we're buried, we're with him. And then we're raised, we're with him. And so both of these sacraments, which just means sacred acts, things you wouldn't do in any normal run of life thing. That's why they're different. They're set apart. They're holy. They're sacred. And in in that act of your baptism, Jesus is there. You're with him, according to scripture. Are you seeking? Have you sought him in baptism? If not, no wonder you're not finding him. And there's a way to get dunked with water and not find Jesus. You sure don't want to do that. That's second place. Third place, it's way more practical, but maybe sometimes difficult, in children. He's found in children. Matthew 18, 5 says, whoever welcomes a little child in my name welcomes me. Jesus says, I'm in them. I'm in them. How would we treat children if we believe that? How many more of us would volunteer for children's ministry if we believe that. They kind of have an advantage because they're around Jesus, right? They're around him, according to Jesus. Or I had somebody one time say that they just hate children. Literally, I hate children? I mean, 
I understand they were in a mood and children can be inconvenient and not controllable or whatever, but Jesus says something for Christians at least that we need to consider. If you're not seeking him in children, like if you're never around children and you're not looking for him in them, appreciating him in them, no wonder you're not finding him. Fourth place, just trying to run through these quick. In the hungry, in the thirsty, in the stranger, in the naked, in the sick, and in the prisoner. Bunch of people that most folks avoid, right? Jesus is there. Matthew 25, he says, For when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I needed clothes, you clothed me. I was sick, you looked after me. In prison, you came to visit me. And the righteous say, when do we do that for you? He says, whenever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. If you're not seeking him in the least of these, in the marginalized, and you're not finding him, well, no wonder. Jesus is there. Jesus is also in the church. Ephesians 1 says, And God placed all things under his feet, appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is what? Which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything of every way, in every way. Isn't this, this spectacular? Like, Jesus is in our fellowship. We live as a part of him. Are you seeking him at church, or do you just go to church? You know? You just go to church. You just go to Bible class. You know, I, I just go to worship God, but I'm not looking for Jesus in the community called church. If you're not, then no wonder you're not finding him. How would we interact with each other if we believe this? Here's another surprising place for some people. Jesus is in you. He's in you. John 14, Jesus says, he's talking about God here. He says, but you know him. For he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And on that day, you will realize that I am in my Father. And you are in me. And I am in you. Kyle had us pause this busy life. Busy life is all about out here and the franticness it creates in here. Do you ever pause? Do you ever stop and go within and start looking for Jesus? To experience Jesus? To listen to Jesus? If you're having trouble finding him and you don't do that, then no wonder you're not finding him. Jesus is also sitting in our story, the gospel story. He's sitting at the right hand of God. There's other verses for this, but one of the things he's doing there is he's interceding for us. It's related to prayer. Romans 8 says, Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. And so I'm just, I could use other verses, but I don't have time. Are you seeking him in prayer? Are you going to God through Christ in prayer? Like, are you seeking it? Like Jacob was at eight. Are you seeking him? If you're not finding him and you're not using prayer, if prayer is just your, you know, hit list of things you want or need or feeling, but you're not looking for Jesus in it, the experience of Jesus in it, no wonder you're not finding him. Jesus is also found in the Bible. I mean, where did I look to find my answer to the question of where is Jesus? I went to scripture. I'm looking at scripture. I'm reading its story. I'm 
looking for clues. I'm on the hunt. I'm looking at my big star and trying to follow it right to God through Jesus. And that's where I looked in John 5, 29. He says, scripture testifies about me. Anyone seeking Christ is going to find themselves in scripture or at least exposed to the the Bible's message. The written word leads us to the living word when we approach it for that, as my class knows. Even the Magi, the star, whatever else was involved, got them to Judea. You know what got them to Bethlehem? You read the story. We just read scripture. Herod called in his Chief priest said, where's, where's this Jesus supposed to be? Bethlehem. Okay. So he had a malicious motive, but he did meet with them and say, okay. And it says he sent them to Bethlehem and say, when you find him, bring, you know, tell me about it. Scripture led them, even them, to Jesus. Are you seeking them in the Bible? Do you crack open your Bible? If not, no wonder you're not finding him. It's one of the wisest moves you can make is seeking Jesus. And finally, this is my favorite one, where Jesus is. He's everywhere. He's everywhere. You don't have to go far because he's everywhere. Ephesians 4.10, he who descended, it's talking about the incarnation, Jesus becoming God, the son, becoming flesh, dwelling among us. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Jesus is everywhere. We live within him. Are you seeking him? Not just anywhere, but everywhere. If not, no wonder you're not finding him. I hope that today one or more of these places where scripture says Jesus is found just inspires you and invites you because guys, this is the whole intent of God. He's not playing hard to get. He wants to be found. You ever played hide and seek with a kid and you're taking too long? What do they do? Over here. (laughs) What? Where where are you? I'm here. (laughs) Why? They want to be found. God wants to be found. He, but he wants you to seek. He wants you to seek, but his promise is clear, not just in Deuteronomy. If you seek him, you will find him. Why? Acts 17, this great statement about the intent of God, about your birth and about where you live, and about when you live. It says this, From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determines the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. Why? God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he's not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. You are in the perfect place, the perfect circumstances at the perfect time in all of history around the perfect people to find Jesus. 
to find God. The question is, are you? Are you? It's the wisest move you can make. It's to define your life as a massive search for God through Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask our elders and our ministers to go ahead and move around the room. There'll be some up there along with their spouses in the balcony. Um, as I just ask you, will you? Will you decide today to join these wise, not these wise guys, I almost said these wise guys. These wise men, would you join them in the wisest move we can make? What star is God lifting up before you today? Uh, you know, all you gotta be is willing. That's it. You just gotta be willing. He will take you right to himself through Jesus Christ. What specific way? Is it an investment in children? Is it the poor? Is it the hungry? Is it scripture for you right now? Is it your prayer life? Is it through the church elevating your attentiveness everywhere you go? Perhaps it's time for you to find Jesus, someone in here to find Jesus in those waters of baptism. Maybe it's time for that. If, you, if we can help you with any of this, we want you to come as we stand and sing.